I'm Kerry Brower, the um, Chief Curator and Acting Director here, and I want to welcome you to um, an evening with uh, Joseph Kosuth, who we're very, very pleased could be here tonight. Um, we're doing this uh, Meet the Artist in connection with uh, the Ponza Collection uh, that has been installed upstairs and opened up last week. Um, that exhibition uh, has to do with the acquisition of 39 works which we've brought into the collection uh, from uh, Count Giuseppe Ponza. Um, and it took a few years to uh, get this all done, but I am so pleased that we have these works upstairs um, on the second floor. Uh, if you haven't seen them, please go up uh, and take a look. There's a whole room of Joseph's work uh, uh, upstairs, as well as uh, 15 other artists uh, in the exhibition. The Ponza Collection has helped us um, close a gap in the collection with so-called conceptual art, uh, as well as some minimalist works um, and light and space works uh, uh, from California. Most of the work comes from the 1960s and, and 1970s, um, and it's a particularly key period, I think, uh, in terms of the development um, in contemporary art history. Uh, I think many of these artists, and particularly Joseph Kosuth, helped really change the course um, of art history um, during that period of time and have continued to be extremely influential in the decades um, that have followed. Uh, I wanted to just take a moment to thank uh, our associate curator of modern art, uh, Evelyn Hankins, who has done a really terrific job with the exhibition. It's her first show that she did here, and originally I was going to work with Ponza myself on the exhibition, uh, but because of taking this acting director role, didn't really have time to do it. So I'm afraid I sort of um, uh, threw Evelyn um, at the exhibition, and she came through not only with flying colors, but just dug into it and did an exceptional job. So uh, congratulations, Evelyn, for doing such a, a magnificent job, beautiful installation. I might just point out that um, Joseph Hershorn used to acquire artists in great depth. We have 64 de Kooning's in the collection, uh, for example. And that's one of the things that we really try to do here is to uh, create in-depth holdings of particularly important uh, artists' works. So there was an eye to that when we were selecting work uh, from the Ponza collection. And we've been able to add five new works uh, by Joseph Kosuth um, into uh, our holdings here at the museum. We had two works uh, already in the collection. And uh, they're from a, a really key period in, in the uh, uh, 1960s, which is so seminal in kind of a turn of art historical events. So I'm very, very pleased um, that those are in the collection. We now have at least the start of uh, an in-depth group of works by, by Joseph in the collection. Um, I might just mention a couple upcoming programs. Let me just say that if you grab our magazine, which should be in the back, or if you did as you came in, uh, it will list some of the uh, public programs that are surrounding the Ponza collection. 
Um, and I might just mention one that's coming up this weekend. I think it's a particularly interesting uh, event. It's uh, MacArthur Grant recipient David Wilson, a filmmaker, uh, really, by trade, um, has, is going to talk on the subject of the museum as art. And he's uh, particularly um, a good choice to talk about this subject because he has a museum in Los Angeles called the Museum of Jurassic Technology. And he's a wonderful, uh, uh, very interesting character who sort of combined the ideas of fact and fiction together in a, a museum environment and sort of mixed uh, serial numbers from the Ashmolean Museum to uh, uh, confuse everybody as to what's real and what isn't real. So I hope you can make that on Saturday at 2 p.m. here in the Ring uh, Auditorium. Uh, before I introduce Joseph, I'd like to just thank the Stephen and Heather Mnuchin Foundation who continue to make these Meet the Artists talks uh, possible. I'd like to thank uh, the extra support of Barbara and Aaron Levine tonight who are here with us and greatly appreciate everything they do for the museum. Uh, Sean Kelly from the Sean Kelly Gallery who's here tonight and has been very supportive of what we do at the museum. Uh, and finally, uh, Milena Kalinowska who runs our um, public programs at the museum and handles these, these wonderful uh, Meet the Artist uh, talks thanks to her uh, and her staff. And now I'd like to just turn to Joseph Kosuth. Uh, we handed out in the back, we did something new tonight. Uh, I usually run through a whole biography up here, but we thought what we would do, Joseph's is so extensive that we handed out a biography uh, in the back, but I do want to say a couple things, just that he was born in Toledo, Ohio, 1945, and he lives and works in, in New York City um, and Rome. He's really one of the pioneers of, of what has been called conceptual art, maybe not correctly, but has been called conceptual art and installation art. Uh, he abandoned painting in the 1960s and for over 40 years has been exploring uh, the production and the role of language uh, in the meaning of art. He's been a writer, he's been deeply engaged with philosophy, and he's done nothing short really than redefine um, the very nature of art uh, of our time by putting such importance on ideas. Uh, and his work over the years, uh, his very distinguished uh, career, has taken on many forms. Uh, of course, as artworks, as installations, as museum exhibitions, as public commissions, and also uh, as, public, uh, uh, as publications. Um, and I just wanted to mention uh, something I mentioned to Joseph a, a little while ago that um, this is a particularly uh, uh, pleasing evening for me because um, one of the first things that I ever installed uh, in a museum or helped to install was in 1983 at MOCA in Los Angeles in what was then called the Temporary Contemporary, now called the Geffen. Um, and it was a work by this artist, Joseph Kosuth. And it was called The Eighth Investigation, involved a whole series of clocks and, and notebooks. And I had such a wonderful time installing that piece, and it totally opened my mind up to whole new ways of thinking about art. And it made a huge difference in, in my career. And so I'm really pleased to welcome tonight Joseph Kosuth. The title of my talk tonight is called Public Texts, Stolen Texts. Conceptual art, simply put, had at its basic tenet 
an understanding that artists work with meaning, not with shapes, colors, or materials. Anything can be employed by the artist to set the work into play, including shapes, colors, or materials. But the form of presentation itself has no value independent of its role as a vehicle for the idea of the work, even while that vehicle is itself part of the idea of the work. Take it out of this. Thus, when you approach the work, you're approaching the idea and therefore the intention of the artist directly. The idea, of course, can be a force that is as contingent as it is complex. And when I have said that anything can be used by or as a work of art, I mean just that. A play within the signifying process, conceptually, cannot be limited by the traditional constraints of morphology, media, or objecthood. We can start with photos. As a concrete and early example, I would set my own work from 1965, the Proto-Investigations, of which works such as Clock 1 and 5 in the present exhibition would be a representative example, equally well known as the 1 and 3 chairs. This work, using deadpan scientific style photographs, which were always taken by others, employed also common objects and enlarged text from dictionary definitions. The physical elements were never signed, with the concept of the work being that this form of presentation would be made and remade. The reason for this was an important part of my intention, eliminate the aura of traditional art and force another basis for this activity to be approached as art, that is, conceptually. Ownership of the work has been established by the production instructions, which second as a certificate. It is signed but as a deed of ownership, not as a work of art. Thus, I've made it clear that these certificates are never to be exhibited since they are not art, and they rarely are. The art itself, which is neither the props with which the idea is communicated, nor the signed certificate, is only the idea in and of the work. As it was for uh, other artists at that time, the issues of modernism were rapidly becoming opaque. One effect of this work was to sum up modernism for me. And once that was visible, I was able to use that view to get past it, as the work which followed has shown. Thus, for me, this work was both a summation of modernism and the way out of it. Art can manifest itself in all of the ways in which human intention can manifest itself. The task for artists is to put into play works of art unfettered by the limited kinds of meanings which objects permit, and succeed in having them become not one of many autonomous texts, but the production of artists as authors within a discourse, when concretized through subjective commitment and comprised of the making process. It is the historically defined agency of the artist working within a practice that sees itself as such a process, that an artist's work becomes believable as art within society. To do that, work must satisfy deeper structures of our culture than that surface which reads in the market as tradition and continuity. The more enriched our understanding of that text of art becomes, so does our understanding of culture. 
A focus on meaning by necessity has forced our concerns on a variety of issues around language and context. These issues pertain to the reception and production of works of art themselves. That aspect of the questioning process, some began to call institutional uh, critique decades later, began here, and it originated with conceptual art's earliest works. A case in point to cite would be my use of tautology in the mid-1960s in works like those on exhibit in the present exhibition. My use of tautologies in the proto-investigations has generated a variety of confused responses. One aspect of this work was to attempt to actualize a Wittgensteinian insight. By drawing out the relation of art to language, could one begin the production of a cultural language whose very function it was to show rather than say. Such artworks might function in a way which circumvents significantly much of what limits language. Art, some have argued, describes reality. But unlike language, artworks, it can also be argued, simultaneously describe how they describe it. Granted, art can be seen here as self-referential, but importantly, not meaninglessly self-referential. What art shows in such a manifestation is indeed how it functions. This is revealed in works which feign to say, but do so as part of an art proposition and reveal the difference while showing their similarity with language. This was, of course, the role of language in my work beginning in 1965. It seemed to me that if language itself could be used to function as an artwork, then that difference would bear the device of art's language game. An artwork then as such a double mask provided the possibility of not just a reflection on itself, but an indirect double reflection on the nature of language through art to culture itself. Do not forget, writes Wittgenstein, that a poem, even though it is composed in the language of information, is not used in the language game of giving information. End of quote. Whatever insights this early work of mine had to share, it did and initiated within the practice an essential questioning process which is now basic to it. It should be obvious that the bearing of the device of the institutions of art would begin at the most elemental level, the point of production itself, the artwork. Seeing the artwork in such a context forced a scrutiny of its conventions and historical baggage, beginning with painting and sculpture itself as an activity. So it was first inside the frame and then outside of it. One goal at the time of work like the second investigation, began in 1968, was to question the institutional forms of art. If the work that preceded this conf confronted the institutionalized form of authority of traditional art, this work pressed the point out of the gallery and museum and into the world, beginning with my use of public media, newspaper, magazine advertising, billboards, and so on, in the second investigation. The second investigation, 1968-69, began in 68, anyway, was partially my own critical response to earlier work of mine utilizing photographs. Both the proto-investigation from 65 with works such as One in Three Chairs and, and the work of the clock, which we showed, and the first investigation, which was the black defini definition works, began in 66, which was made of photographs, negative enlargements of texts such as dictionary definitions and etymological entries were, as a form of presentation, intended to be made and remade as a device to eradicate the aura and reliquary of painting, 
so other questions could be raised about the nature of art and language. As a result, photography eventually emerged within what later was perceived as a kind of avant-garde practice and led me to abandon its use in 1968 for the next several years and to begin the second investigation and its use of anonymous public media. While the kind of fine art of photography had existed for some time parallel to the activity of painting, it had all of the problems of painting. It was both old conservative, with a popular appeal of realism, and new conservative, meaning defined along with the best of modernism. It was in the context of the later part of the 1960s that I was very fortunate to begin to get the support of Count Giuseppe Panza de Bumo for works such as you have seen now here at the Hirshhorn. My work at this time was very difficult for the average collector to understand, much less support. Indeed, even with the labors of Leo Castelli and Sean Kelly over the past 40 years, it's still difficult for many collectors. In these important early years, Panza purchased through Genenzo Sporone, my first dealer, something like 23 works. I was then in my mid-twenties. The works you see here today I did when I was 20 years old. In fact, then being a young artist meant that one wasn't taken very seriously. So I hid my age until I was 28. In other words, after my work was in the collection of MoMA, the Guggenheim, the Tate, Centre Pompidou, and so on. And I, I had over 80 international solo exhibitions by then, half before the age of 25. At the press conference of my first uh, retrospective at the Musée d'Art Moderne in Paris, I revealed that I was only 28 years old. Panza knew my age, but it didn't matter. Every evening after dinner in Varese, he would go into his study and read about art, and he told me that my work and my arguments supporting it were powerful and they made sense to him. For the world of art, it was a sea change to realize that, that the age and, more importantly, the gender of the artist didn't matter. It was the ideas that counted. For those of you here tonight that don't know it, it was conceptual art that made this important change. No longer was the model of the artist the expressionist one of the, of course, male, idiot savant, Christ-like shaman, maker of erratic traces of the hand, producer of unique reliquary for a market that wanted art to look like art. Ponza's support made an important difference, not just for me, but for generations of artists to come. In his history, one sees the creative role of the collector to help make happen what might not have happened otherwise. So, this is the second investigation. In 1968, the arrival of work of colleagues of mine eventually to be associated with conceptual art as well as the need of earthwork artists to have a gallery presence, meant that photography was increasingly being seen as part of an avant-garde practice in ways which had not been seen since Man Ray and other Dadaists earlier in the century. Thus, while this was a time when others were then beginning to use photography in their work, I came to the conclusion that photography was beginning to share many of the limitations of painting, defined formally and technically, be they the perception of either limits or innovation, and a priori establishing its meaning as art through the authority of such form. It seemed to me that all media-defined activities were beginning to share this characteristic. For me, the nature of art had become the questioning of the nature of art. Yet forms of authority clearly stopped this questioning process. And in keeping with how Clement Greenberg defined modernism at the time, 
the modernist institutional view of art was that it was comprised of a Kantian quest to find the limits of the medium. For me, however, the question was a larger one. How does art produce meaning, first about itself and then as itself in the world? To find this out, I felt I had to ask, how does art generate meaning as art outside of such a formally authoritative context? It was as a, a work in the world that we could not only understand how art produced its own meaning, but also how culture itself is produced. I turned to the use of public media as a presentation device for several reasons. Let's do another one. It severed the event of the work from the kind of physical form of art which one associated with the high style of modernism. Since one didn't expect to find art in a space reserved for advertising, such as billboards or newspaper ads, it wasn't defined as art a priori, as it was with painting, sculpture, or photography. It made completely clear that a formalist approach to the work would be absurd. In this way, it could not appeal to certain inherited forms for its validation as art. Yet in, of, yet in spite of all of this, it was art. What could this, still, what could this then tell us, uh, what this could then tell us, was that there was more to the activity of art than, say, the manipulation of forms and colors. It enabled me to separate the activity of art from this conventional understanding of what art could be. In this way, the work was not able to ask, uh, excuse me, in this way the work was able to ask questions within the practice itself which a more traditional form of art could not. There was a political content to this process as well. My generation had real questions to ask of institutional forms of authority of any kind in 1968. Painting seemed insular and elitist. Using the organs of mass culture without the pandering to the masses, a la Walt Disney or product advertising, had a distinct appeal to me, and it reflected the particular interests of my political activism at the time. If, you, if you're familiar with uh, the exhibition that uh, Harry Zeman did called When Attitudes Become Form, this was what my participation was. Four, uh, four newspapers around Verne, um, Switzerland, where the show was. Well, I felt that such work, such as One in Three Chairs, had initiated the appropriate questioning process. It was increasingly limited by this new reading being given to work using photography. The second investigation work used as its form of presentation anonymous advertisements in public media, such as newspapers, magazines, billboards, handbills, and as well, even te television advertising. This is understood to be the first known use of such a context for the production of artworks, and it should be seen as something specific and quite different from the billboard art which followed in the next decade, where this presentational strategy was often used as an end in itself. The content of the advertisements I utilized in 1968 was based on the taxonomy of the world developed by Roger as the synopsis of categories for use in his thesaurus. Each ad was an entry from this synopsis, which in effect put, in the, put into the world the fragments of its own description. What this initiated, of course, was a questioning of the ontology of artworks, the role of context, of language, of institutional framing, of reception. For me, the concerns of this work focus clearly on what was to remain a central concern of my art. It was apparent to me by the mid-1960s that the issue for new work was not around the materialization or dematerialization of a work. 
In fact, it was not even concerned with materials. The issue which defined my work, as well as that activity which became known as conceptual art, was the issue of signification. What are the questions pertaining to the function of meaning in the production and reception of works of art? What is the application and what is the limit of language as a model in both the theory and the production of actual works? Then following from that, what is the role of context, be it architectural, psychological, or institutional, on the social, cultural, and political reading of work? It was these issues which separated conceptual art from the modernist agenda which preceded it. And it is this non-prescriptive practice which has remained flexible enough to endure and quite obviously continues over 40 years later to provide a basis for conceptual arts relevant to recent art practice. Indeed, what is interesting is that when I started my activity, it had to have a special name, conceptual art. But the work of young, younger artists now, fortunately, can just be called art. After nearly 40 years of a kind of informal division in my work between temporary art and projects and uh, works and installations in museums and galleries of a more permanent nature, I found a particular pleasure in doing permanent public works. Working directly with the public space, framed with meanings other than those associated with the specialized institutional ones within art, presents a new challenge of a particular kind. The special task in doing such work is to make certain that it is appropriate to the context. How we define appropriate describes the interface between the viewer-reader and the artist as a producer of meaning. This is in terms of both the focus of the work as a project with a subject area, as well as the social and cultural context of the community which receives it and must live with it. An important consideration, and that which has made it a special challenge, is that such work must be, must be accessible to a non-specialized audience while at the same time providing an enriching cultural contribution as it makes a serious addition to the body of my work. The assignment is a different one from working in a museum, for example, which can presume a certain knowing audience. There is a kind of social contract to working in a space shared by many, and the artist has some responsibility to provide a level of attainable meaning. The task is to do that and not compromise one's problematic as an artist. At present, my approach to public art aspires to integrate several aspects that are important to the location. The work attempts to provide a monumental view to the experience of members of a particular community to their own historical presence, and manages to do so without the normal sentimental and institutionalized aspect of city monuments. As a work of art, its context becomes the content. Again, it's the architectural, the social, the psychological and the cultural, as well as the historical terrain which binds them. With this objective in mind, such work utilizes both the historical and cultural aspect <coughs> of its location and its role in contemporary life. In such projects as mine, the experience of the work becomes one and the same as the architectural environment in which the work is seen, humanizing what is often experienced by individuals as a depersonalized public building. It is for this reason that such an art project must be seen as integrated, both in conception and in fabrication, as part of the whole urban experience. Um, and not be treated as a separate additional object, which was added afterwards, as more traditional public artwork often is. The buildings of any community are the repository of the life which has taken place there and its accumulated meanings. This finally, is what history consists of. 
I'm explaining this because I'm going to show more recent projects in which this is all an important aspect. The final selection of specific aspects of any given work, as well as the quantity of elements in a work, is established by the material gathered by the research for that site along with the physical configuration of the architecture, with that in itself having social and cultural implications, not simply formal ones. The limit each of these aspects imposes on the other leads up to the final selection, thus constituting itself as a kind of internal organization of the work. The locations are chosen to provide both a quantity of context to anchor the work, as well as to provide an overall presence and effect. This permits the work to be experienced as it provides a unifying aspect to the architectural diversity of any particular site. Often the project of a work is to utilize a variety of elements which are meaningful in their specificity, while at the same time constructing a larger comprehensive meaning as a group. In short, such projects can be viewed as both a series of works as well as one large work in parts, and indeed, and indeed they are often both. The types of historical and cultural material I consider when I do research for a work are really unlimited. This must be the presumption of any creative process which employs historical material for a project such as mine. My approach to the use of such material, similar to the decision-making process in selecting the material to begin with, is what to a great extent ultimately comprises the work. The play between this part of the process and its manifestation in relation to specific sites in the community forms the complete work. To begin with, at its root, even before how each text becomes an element of a work of mine, each text also represents a concrete moment in the history of the intellectual life of that community. And each is a telling fragment of one actual individual's personal contribution to the history of ideas. My use of their words, their thoughts, is to honor them as I build something of my own. But you ask, what are these works which I have built and why have I built them? In fact, how is it even your work, since the words are the words of others? I would answer like this. As artists, we all begin to construct with what is given. We appropriate fragments of meaning from the detritus of culture and construct other meanings, which are ours for our time and are our own. In the same sense, all writers write with words invented by others. One uses words with prior meaning to make paragraphs which have a meaning of one's own. It was clear by the mid-1960s that the existing institutionalized form of art, the paradigm of painting and sculpture, could no longer itself constitute being a paragraph of one's own. It had, for artists, become the sign and signage of the idiospace of modernism, an over-enriched context of historicized meaning, signifying itself and collapsing new meaning under its own weight. So, by reducing any ingredient of cultural prior meaning to being a smaller constructive element, a word element, I could then construct other meanings at another level, producing a paragraph of my own, and still remain within the context of art sufficiently, I felt, to alter it. This has been a basic aspect of my practice, and has, for over 40 years, necessitated some form of appropriation, and it is evidenced throughout my work, beginning with these examples of one in five Clock One and Five, uh, through to the play of the unmentionable at the Brooklyn Museum in 1991, and more recently, the language of equilibrium, my installation for the Venice Biennale, the last one, at the Armenian monastery on the island of San Lazaro. 
Others have asked, is work such as yours visual, and are you concerned whether it is beautiful? And I confess, I cannot distinguish between visual and conceptual when the knowledge of a work's elements and its internal play is acquired visually. A concept must be communicated to be known. In fact, eliminate the legacy of formalism and the question becomes nonsense. The reason, the, sorry, the reading of the text along with the understanding of the play between them and between them and the architecture is all visual. In any case, I certainly accept as a potential given all of the meanings and experiences which the work generates, including both beautiful or ugly. However, I think to understand the work in terms of its having a history and a context is to comprehend the very limited role traditional aesthetic reception has to this work's deeper meanings. In other words, the extent of the role of traditional aesthetics in the play of the work is provided by the viewer-reader, and providing that by them probably in varying degrees risks blocking their appreciation of the work. Still, aesthetic responses to one's experiences, whatever they are, are hard to control or deny. One can, however, more easily control the desire to theorize about those responses. I think of the comment of Roland Barthes when he said, a text is not a line of words releasing a single theological meaning, but a multidimensional space in which a variety of writings, none of them original, blend and clash. The text is a tissue of quotations drawn from the innumerable centers of culture. End of quote. To make a work which plays with history is, of course, to acknowledge that such work is a play on the postponement of meaning. It is a play of delay. All you can see of my contribution is a view of the artistic process itself. For when meaning is the material of one's work, it remains a gap, something between the lines. It is, however, through that gap that art sees the world and then begins to change it. Now I show some pictures. This is a selection, I'm not sure, maybe 30, 40% at the tops of what I've done in the um, last, I guess, um, what is it, 20 years? Almost 20 years? But we're not going to have that long of an evening. That's why it's reduced. Okay. Um, yeah, it's okay. This is the Brooklyn Museum, um, the play of the unmentionable, uh, which I make some things are things that came up. Uh, in the text. Yeah. I'm not going to speak on all of them or we would never get out of here, but some things I'll say something about. This is a project I did in Fijac in honor of Champollion, who is credited with decoding the uh, Rosetta Stone. This was Documenta 9, the one that was um, directed by uh, Jan Hoot. And um, this was a very engaging work for me. Uh, I, had, I covered work, much 19th century work from the region of Hesse in Germany, which is part of the permanent collection in Kassel. And it was a, a sort of um, horizontally Walter Benjamin and vertically Wittgenstein. That, I say that to be tantalizing. Next slide. <laughs> this is the beginning of a series that I still do. Um, this was the very first one, which was in um, Oslo, Norway. It's called Guests and Foreigners. And there it had to do with Wittgenstein out of um, Vienna and in um, his, the period he spent in Norway. Uh, there's only a couple examples of this series, but I've done them all over the world. Um, this is uh, the Quineri Stampaglia, which is a, a very important library and a museum in Venice. 
uh, and this was a work that's on the facade there. Um, you may have seen it if you've been to Venice. I took there essentially a theory of decoration uh, and made decoration out of it. This is, a, this is an installation in Japan, um, Miyake Prefecture, where the, first, the, the man in the 19th century who wrote the first uh, Japanese dictionary uh, after the period of isolation of Japan, which was nearly 300 years, uh, based on the Webster Dictionary. And um, I uh, was asked to do a work um, because of the dictionary connection, obviously. And so it's about, with, yeah, I use these two dictionaries. This, uh, this is a work in uh, the, the, large, the tallest building uh, in Japan, in Yokohama. And uh, it was a work I did several stories tall. Um, about 500,000 people a day can see the work. I used to say they see the work, but that's really presumptuous. Uh, but because the Yokohama train station is at the bottom of the work. So, okay. It's the text of Schiller. This is uh, in Leipzig. It's uh, the, the, the floor of the... Um, I, I use Lessing's Laocoon from two different directions. This was a retro... I had a retrospective at the Irish Museum of Modern Art, um, and um, uh, the, the new work was this extremely large installation where I had something like 23 assistants who worked all day long for about a month. Um, it was a massive undertaking. Uh, and it had to do with uh, Joyce um, out of Ireland and Wittgenstein in Ireland. I did this work for the University of Amsterdam in the city of Amsterdam. Uh, going into the, each, uh, it was for the, the anniversary of the uh, university. And it, um, <clears throat> I went to each college and found a scandal because <coughs> it was a context of free thinking for a long time when other countries, um, for religious reasons, were not permitting such free thinking. And um, so uh, I pulled out scandalous texts in Dutch, um, which uh, were done in a very sober way on the facade of these very valuable old buildings in the middle of Amsterdam. This I did, this is for the cultural, cultural capital of Europe, and I did this um, in Stockholm, and it was in, it's front of the, in front of the parliament. You could see um, in one direction um, uh, into the old town, and the other um, into the new town is quite the center. Um, uh, Selma Lagerdorf, and um, I'm glad I remember the. Um, that's right, Strindberg, were the two texts. This was some years ago. Recently, you'll see later. I've, it's been, it's now, uh, was purchased by the um, Moderna Museum, and you'll see what we did with, with it there. This, um, that was the big Goethe anniversary in Frankfurt, and um, uh, as you know, what they, what sometimes cities do with poor um, uh, leaders of culture and part of the intellectual life, they, there was a lot of festivals going on. I was invited by the Schoen uh, Museum to do a work. And I did a guest in Foreigners based on Goethe's uh, famous uh, uh, journey to Italy. And um, this, this is what this is. Um, this is a, 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 
a monastery uh, not too far from Zurich, uh, and it's the it's the the museum of that region. And it, this work was based on a library that had burnt down, and the books that are missing were missing from it. It's another guest in foreigners. This is in Wellington, uh, New Zealand, and it was a, a, a building, r interesting building, and won a lot of awards in that part of the world. Uh, and my show was the first big installation work there. And it had to do um, uh, uh, really um, with the, the history of New Zealand. For, for the World Cup, um, what year was that? I can't remember. Well, it was, you just read it, I didn't. But anyway, it's for that year of the World Cup. Um, um, the, I was commissioned to do the work for the, um, the enormous um, stadium, uh, which is about a half a, um, half a kilometer around. And um, it, it had to do with the relation of that spot in Sapporo to the rest of the world. Once a year, the city of Naples invites an artist uh, to do a show for um, somewhere between two and three months over Christmas and New Year's and all uh, at the main square, um, uh, Piazza Pubblicita. And it's a very, it's a massive square, and, it, and, I've, and I, it's quite crushing in a way of a lot of the works. So I was very happy that I thought mine was quite successful. It was an enormous um, uh, scandal. Uh, even to the point where um, it was uh, spoken badly about by the Pope at the time, and because I because the work uh, uses the text of Benedetto Croce, uh, which talks about the relativity of truth, and uh, there was uh, uh, some weeks of press about it, and it was an enormous, uh, a happy success of a scandal. So. Each of those letters is around, just short of three feet high. It's quite a big spot. What do we have there? Yes, for the, um, the new um, German parliament, next to the more famous Reichstag, this building by Bromfeld, wonderful building, uh, which uh, was all of the members of the parliament had their uh, offices. And it looks down on this long, extremely large, um, I think it's about 120 meter long uh, walkway. And I was given the commission to do this work, which is the largest work at the new, in the new parliament. On one side, you see a curtain wall that you see the, 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 the new uh, library. And um, uh, I took um, two texts, one by Thomas Mann and the other by a writer that you probably don't know named Ricardo Hoch. Thomas Mann is, of course, talking about the origin of life. It's from Magic Mountain. Uh, Ricardo Hook also was a novelist, but she was a historian. And she was something very important. Um, she was the first, uh, historically in Germany, she was the first important uh, professor who resigned in protest when her Jewish colleagues were losing their jobs. She lived in the East quite a bit. And I thought that if I was being brought into Germany to do a, a work in the parliament, uh, it would be good to have somebody from the East, somebody from the West, a man and a woman at least, and then we can find out we, how we use what they have to say. 
Um, Thomas Mann uh, said that she was the greatest woman in Germany uh, but, um, at the time, so they, they actually also knew each other. It was a stainless steel uh, in, embedded in the, in the um, stone. This is a, I think it's a former brewery that is outside of Dusseldorf. And uh, they just figured out what a good thing to do with a building with no windows is to have a museum of light art. And um, so I got a little job there to do this, uh, to, to do a work in this particular room. And it's the only work of mine that you look down on because there's, it's a kind of uh, bridge work that goes through the room having something to do with the mysteries of beer production, I imagine. Um, and um, it's used that way. Heinrich Hein was the, my cultural victim for this particular work. This was a great, this is, I live in Rome, really, more than, I'm there more than New York. And what's great about uh, there, uh, there are, there's always a downside to everywhere, but one of the upsides of Rome is you're in Rome, after all. And... Um, <laughs> This uh, is, of course, the Foro Romano, and um, this was one of the largest areas. I, was, uh, I said, listen, we would like you to do a work in the whole place, and it's enormous, and we have absolutely no money, and you can't touch anything, because the, the cultural preservation people were almost standing there while I was working. So um, what I came up with was... Uh, to take a text about architecture, Vitruvio, and take this paragraph and fragment it and put it amongst the fragments of a, essentially a marketplace that um, was designed based on his architectural principles. So there was a nice circularity to that. Um, this was done on panes of glass um, with vinyl lettering um, and sticks of neon. Um, and I actually, one of the rare moments in my life, I actually made it under budget. I can't see. I better look over here. Ah, yes. This is for the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. I was the centennial artist, and I did three projects there that had a relationship with each other. This was the one that had to do with the artist, uh, uh, the collector, and the art historian. Um, and um, so the artist was Whistler, and I took from his, his lecture uh, about uh, collectors, and I made a work about it, which went around the museum. It was a very difficult place to do a show because Isabella's standing there like this with her will that if anything is moved or changed, everything has to be immediately sold and the money given to Harvard. So they lived, to, to, to invite me in, uh, as a centennial artist, was a, a, a courageous, if not suicidal, uh, impulse of the uh, uh, museum direction, uh, which I say, of course, only with humor, because uh, it was an incredible uh, opportunity to go into the archives and to, to see a lot of uh, fantastic material. Bernard Berenson was uh, her uh, curator who traveled around Europe buying things. She was the first collector that chose through photographs uh, her purchases. Um, she traveled also a lot. And so there's a whole guest and foreigners dimension to the very base of the collector. If she had not been a wealthy society lady, she would have 
most certainly been an installation artist because she, the, the care with which she positioned things and, and the fact in her that she made such a, a tough, um, she, had, she made the kind of will that any tough artist would uh, like to have about their own work. And she chose and positioned everything in, in, in this uh, museum. Um, there were cases, that's the, this was of course um, uh, something I was able to do was to use these cloths which really already existed and make some alterations on them because they weren't an artwork nor were they a position. I actually, for the first time in my life, really worked with lawyers because we didn't want the, the museum to be sold and the money given to Harvard. So I, I tried to stay within the, the, the guidelines, shall we say. And the last that you just saw, you're seeing it before me, um, in, in terms of the presentation here, uh, had to do with the, I was able to work with works in the collection and do this play of the guest and foreigner, which unfortunately I can't really uh, adequately tell you much about. <laughs> but there are books and um, one installation may be coming soon to where you live. All right, this is a, a work, uh, this I uh, did, Kalbakov and I were invited to do works in honor of um, Hans Christian Andersen for the city of Copenhagen who had a birthday. Um, and um, I was given this room, very beautiful room, uh, and the only place I really could work was the floor, which didn't present a problem. What I did was I found the, that um, there was, I decided I would use, do a carpet, which I'd never done. Well, I had done, but not at this scale. And uh, it turns out there was, in fact, a carpet company uh, that for a long time had worked with artists uh, going back to the late 19th century. So um, they became uh, my, my patron, and I was, we were able to do this. And essentially what it is, I took the text of The Emperor's New Clothes by Anderson, which had been my childhood favorite and was also used against me at the beginning of conceptual art um, as um, The Emperor's New Clothes. I think you get it. Anyway, so that for me had some irony to it. Um, so I, what that was connected up with was Kierkegaard, who was a contemporary of Anderson. But he, um, uh, you know, Anderson wrote present basically children's books, but he wanted a certain intellectual respectability that he never had. And, and he heard that Kierkegaard was writing about him in his first book and was quite excited and happy about it. But... The book came out and it was a damning critique, uh, one that Anderson in his lifetime never really recovered from completely. What you have in the small type is this um, is words of Kierkegaard. And I went through Kierkegaard's writing, pulling out sentences, and essentially wove together a defense of Anderson using the words of Kierkegaard as a birthday present for Anderson. Um, that's the short version of the story. This I did. On, this is the. It's a, a, a. It was built for as a church, although I don't believe it was ever um, used as one. And it's a, in the center of Copenhagen. And this is the tower of the building, in which I did an interior and exterior work um, with other Anderson material. That's looking up from the. This is a beautiful tower uh, in an extremely mysterious little town on the Adriatic coast um, where the artists are invited to do works. It's a medieval tower. 
And this is a work I've been doing. It began, um, this is just one manifestation of it. I've been doing it in various countries. It began in Rome at the Castello Sant'Angelo um, and uh, Hadrian's tomb, sometimes, not tomb, building, anyway. Uh, but uh, Castello Sant'Angelo is its proper name. And I was given, um, I believe it was six rooms, and I took the word meaning from the six languages of the, the most prominent groups of tourists that go through it, because it's, it has a lot of tourists that go through it. Um, and th that was how I began the basis of the work. Then the work continued to grow, and I've done this in various locations. Uh, Sarajevo, I did it in Sarja, the United Arab Emirates. Um, and it continues to expand as it goes. I add languages. Uh, and that, that manifestation is one work, and then it goes to another place, and it gets larger. Um, I did it, it's on the permanent version of uh, in the Canary Islands in the Museum of Contemporary Art there um, and a bunch of other places. This is the, the, the National Gallery of Italy in Rome. Um, they commissioned me to do a work um, which um, is in a, 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 was a restored uh, cortile, which is a, you know, a, an, air, an, an outside space that's inside the museum. Um, and it was the um, commemorative year of Giordano Bruno, so um, I worked with the text of Bruno. Someone I'd always had a, a fascination about and an interest in. So. This is a very interesting space in Pescara. Uh, it's a beautiful villa. Uh, it's a cultural foundation. Many artists that you know of have done installations there. And um, this is a work called A Grammatical Remark. It's a series of installations I, I've done over the years um, on occasion. This is a permanent work in Denver at the Convention Center. Um, if you're in Denver, it's a fairly new building. I think it only completed uh, quite just a few years ago. You may have seen this in New York. It was also at the Unlimited at, in Basel. Um, and um, I, I'm a very lucky artist. I have a, a, a collaborator uh, who's willing to uh, stick his neck out to do difficult and sometimes very expensive projects um, uh, without worrying about what's going to happen to it afterwards. And we managed to keep doing this. So. Um, uh, I've been actually blessed in my life because I um, was saying to somebody earlier, I began working with, Joe, uh, with Leo Castelli when, he, when I was only 24 years old and grew up in the gallery. I was really the baby of the gallery. Um, and, um, I, and then, of course, Leo uh, got older, and, and I began. And it was important for me to have somebody else to work with as well. And so I, I, I chose Sean Kelly. And um, so um, two of the... I think really important dealers uh, uh, I've had the great fortune to work with. This is another show at Sean's. This is the last one. There's a, a show up now of, of early works in the 60s, but of new work, this was the last one I did there, which was based on a labyrinth. Um, it was, I had a really great time with it. I think um, it was, for many, it was a wonderful confusion of, maybe more references than it's fair to ask of any audience, but 
this was the first show of my, my gallery in Paris, um, Amin Ruck, and I went into and I took the photographs of the personal libraries of philosophers um, and um, made an installation using those photographs, uh, which were silkscreen on glass and illuminated. And, um, and, and I thought I presented it in a proper setting using books. That's, I just mentioned, that's uh, uh, the work um, that is on the, the permanent work on the facade that was related to the blue one in the tunnel. This was also, I did four museums, slow down if you would a little, um, four, uh, four different museums in the Canary Islands. Um, one was the Anthropology Museum, um, uh, the other was the Columbus Museum, which had a map, and I did an installation. You can show the next one. Uh, installation um, with all the maps that were done without America in them. I just thought maybe the world was having some America fatigue, and it would be a kind of, as an American artist, a kind of nice thing to do. So this is, um, uh, and this globe was the uh, was a. Uh, an enlargement of the official reproduction that's made in London, the same people made this one for me, of the, of the, 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 the globe, the last globe that existed without America on it as well. And of course, the, the texts have to do with maps and questions about it. That's the play. This was the Anthropology Museum where when, when bodies would be found and people would die, they would take the skull and put it in this museum. So these were questions about life and about existence. You may have seen this uh, if you went to the Venice Biennale, the last one. Uh, it's across from Giardini, uh, where the Biennale uh, pavilions are. If it's on the way to the Lido, you couldn't avoid it. And it's Armenian island. It's a repository if you're Armenian. This is this protected during the diaspora. All of Armenian culture, um, and um, it's quite an important place. And they invite artists occasionally. Kunelis did a show there that was very well received, and, and I was honored to be invited. And I worked with um, the, the, the founder of the order of the monastery, wrote the first Armenian dictionary. And he, um, so I took the word for water. And I, and I played with the etymology of it in Armenian, Italian, and English. Um, Armenian because of the island, Italian because we were also in Italy, and English because I'm, the artist was English-speaking, and it was an international exhibition. This is the Campanile. It's really actually four parts that make one larger work. This is a recent, uh, last year, uh, installation I did. Um, I took, uh, this is a, a little like the ICA, it's a very lively place. They, Patty Smith has done, uh, you know, uh, performances there. They have art exhibitions. A lot goes on. I did a, a, a show. Uh, I don't have slides of here, but um, working with six younger artists. And the idea there was I worked with young artists who spoke Spanish but weren't from Spain. They were from Latin America and Mexico and South America. And here was the project uh, on the facade was similar. I took um, Borges. Onetti, 
uh, and Cortazar, three Spanish language writers, but not from Spain. And I took three novels and I took, went through them and pulled a sentence uh, out of sentence after, out of these three books. And with these sentences, I then constructed a paragraph that made sense. Which but it was a work which described its own making, essentially using the words of these three authors. And this is also part of the guest and foreigner uh, thing, but not in a direct way. So this is the, the reinstalled work at Moderna Mazit. It's um, Bob Rauschenberg did the logo, and it's, that's his handwriting, the Moderna Mazit. This is, unfortunately, uh, when this is being assembled, we realized we didn't have the other photo. As half of the work is, out, is uh, outside, and the other half is inside. So this is the, the Strindberg part, and then the uh, Selma Lorgendorf's on the inside in the main hall of the museum. Oh, there it is. We did find it. And now we have one last thing I couldn't leave out. The Hirschhorn. I realized I, I had to show, of course, show this installation, which I had the best time doing. It was in, um, what year was that? 80, we don't have titles on it. Um, well, I know when it was, because it was when uh, the election between Bush, Bush Sr. and um, Mr. Clinton. And it was just about 10 days before the, um, or a week even, before the, the election. And, um, and I suppose some people around the Hirshhorn remember me for this show. When we were in, change the slide, you can see the work a little better maybe. Essentially what you had here um, were... Um, as, it says, as the title says, it, uh, newspaper articles from the Herald Tribune, uh, qu uh, quotes of Kafka, and then other quotes. And there was a play together. Let's maybe get a closer one. I don't know if we begin to see. But of course, the, the newspaper quotes did not put the um, sitting president in a very happy light at all. And of course, the play with Kafka and the other quotes... Anyway, so when the, when the uh, I was working, we were silk, these were silkscreen, we were working behind these temporary walls. They came down, and, and my, my curator loved it, and I, I loved it. And, um, but uh, the director of the Hirshhorn at the time was a little less convinced because essentially they were so partisanly anti-Bush that it could have been electioneering on federal property just before an election. So we, the head of the, the Smithsonian was called in, to um, have a meeting about this problem. And meanwhile, I had had contact with the ACLU's um, censorship task force. I don't know how I happened to, but... Um, and um, so they were said, oh boy, we're ready. So anyway, so we had the meeting, and I could tell that there was some serious concern, and it's understandable, you know, from, the, from their perspective why there would be serious concern, I guess. Um, myself, I didn't know about this uh, problem about being on um, federal land, and it was election coming up, and it seemed to have some relevance. Well, finally, um, the, we're standing there, and as I realized this is not going to go my way, I said, this is what I said. I said, listen, it's possible if you leave it up, you have some problems. But I can promise you, if you take it down, you definitely will have some problems. 
So anyway, um, they left it up and nobody had any problems. So it, it, everybody ended up being happy and I didn't have to pretend I was Hans Hacker. And it just worked out wonderfully. I think that's it. Any questions? <laughs>